Oh, hello, and welcome back to the third episode of the Evermore podcast, an exploration of Baltimore's art, history, and forgotten lore. I'm your host, Serena Brontide, and as previous listeners will know, I moved to Maryland in 2022 to build a family with the coolest people known to man and to pursue my MFA degree in creative writing and publishing at the University of Baltimore. To be honest, I was not stoked about spending so much time in the city. I'd been hearing nothing but negative things about it the entire time I was growing up, and honestly, I've never been much of a city person. But when I got here, it was nothing like I imagined. Even in the areas that no one would ever, ever put on travel brochures, there's always something interesting to see or learn about. Sometimes it's in the form of street art or a historical monument. Other times it may be about phenomenal architecture or simply an interesting person who once lived there. Either way, this podcast exists so we can explore them all together. So far, we visited Poe's grave and the Ouija board 7-Eleven. But today, we're going to be keeping things a little bit closer to the vest for me and going to the building that brought me to Baltimore in the first place. This is a building that is guarded by dragons, disguised as a bank, and it sits at the edge of a rainbow. Incidentally, it's also where I'm earning my degree, which is not, unfortunately, in witchcraft and wizardry. In this episode, we're going to be taking a walk through what is currently the Liberal Arts and Policy Building at the University of Baltimore. But don't be fooled. The same building was once home to a secret society of knights. On our tour, we'll explore hints of the past that's been left behind, learn more about this secret society, and then explore some of the more modern artistic elements that the university has added. Was the university's liberal arts and policy building once the home of a good old boys club? Or was it something a bit more scandalous? Let's go find out. As always, if you stick with me until the end, you can also hear me spill my guts about something that is going on with me. And today, it's a two for the price of one about my career and also my penchant for chaotic entertainment. So come one, come all, and let us do the thing. Onward! So today, our tour begins on the corner of North Charles Street and West Preston Street. Across the street, you've got a Starbucks, various restaurants, a hookah bar. About a block and a half away, there is the Lyric Theater, and the entire campus is accessible from Penn Station. Typically, I'm walking from the Fitzgerald parking garage, so I'll walk down past the cool modern design of the campus library, hang a right at the Learning Commons, walk past the Gordon Plaza and the Learning Center, and then I'll sneak down Morton Alley to enter the building from the rear entrance, which is also known as Inclusion Alley, but we're going to talk about that more later. This route is convenient, absolutely, but it doesn't do justice to the majesty or the architecture of the building itself. The main entrance of this building is facing West Preston Street, where you can get a much better look at this large Italian Renaissance-style building constructed out of a light-colored stone. As a whole, the building has a slightly imposing scale, and the ground level of the building has arcaded features. As your eyeline travels up the side of the building, you'll notice a generous amount of windows which further emphasize the division of floors within the building. No two horizontal rows of windows are shaped the same. The center of the building that faces West Preston Street features a large balcony, carved out by archways and columns and lined with balustrades. As you look upwards at the balcony, you'll also notice a row of three arch windows towards the top of the wall there within. The windows that line up with the bottom of the oversized balcony archways are decorated with alternating round and triangular pediments. The groundmost level of the building features a bold stone look. It's almost as if you put tall baseboards on the exterior of the building. 
Soon after that, the same smooth, cool stone has been laid out in a common running brick pattern. In other words, the joints of the brick are staggered in the middle of the bricks below it. You've seen it before, trust me. After the second ledge, the brick pattern gives away to a decorative band before turning into a smooth stone, surely to allow the beautiful archways and pediments the opportunity to catch your eye. Along the corners of the building, however, the brick pattern continues to climb the building alongside the remaining two rows of windows, and similarly to the smooth center of the exterior walls, both are cut off by an elaborately layered cornice around the top. I think it goes without saying that this building has always been a highly praised architectural structure in the city of Baltimore, but in addition to the many accolades from citizens themselves, the building was also awarded a Certificate of Architectural Merit from the Baltimore Chapter of the American Institute of Architects and the Charles Street Association. Now that we've talked about the overall exterior of the building, let's talk some more about the decorative details. First things first, the gargoyles. There are two dragon-like figures that are mounted to the side of the building outside of the main entrance. They have prominent ventral scales along their neck and chest, rounded scales around their backs, and ornate and relatively rounded out wings. The creature's mouths are open, and they're exposing their sharp top teeth with their tongues out, threatening to eat those who pass by for dinner, lest they have a B-card to access the building. Both of them have a flagpole attached to their backs, and they hold a circle, almost as if they were door knockers, in their hands. Also near the front entrance, you'll find two circular seals carved into the stone. This is the first branding of the building's original owners, the seal of the Knights of Pythias. Inside, there is a crest with the Maryland state flag and images of a man with a sword, a knight standing tall with a shield, and a knight's helmet in the middle. Below them is a ribbon banner with the Latin phrase, Crescite et multiplicamini. At its center, this phrase translates to grow and multiply. Much of the seal, including the phrase itself, seems to be a callback to Maryland's Sparrow Seal, which was first introduced in 1765 on the title page of Reverend Thomas Bacon's compilation of The Laws of Maryland. The second branding of this building comes from Loyola Bank, which acquired the property after the Knights vacated in the 1950s. You can see the carving on the northwest corner of Charles and Preston Streets, and it reads, Loyola Federal Savings and Loan Association. Now, in addition to those two identifying features of the building, you'll also find evidence of the University of Baltimore and the Liberal Arts and Policy Building along the sides of the exterior as well. The interior of the building is not without its quirks and charms either. When you walk in from the Preston Street entrance, you'll step into a hallway lined with tiles of zodiac images. As you walk forward, you'll come face to face with the back entrance of the building after entering a wide barrel vaulted lobby. If you look upwards, you'll find yourself standing in the middle of a gorgeous spiral staircase. It's made of marble and is highlighted by the original stained glass windows at each of the five levels. The stained glass has a main image that features a knight of Pythias with his sword cradled in his arm as he speaks to a woman in a green cloak. This and other surrounding crests and images make use of bold greens, blues, reds, and yellows. Above the main image, a crest with the letters KP serves as a callback to the knights that once walked these halls. But who were these knights, and what the F were they doing in Baltimore? We'll explore all of that right after I play you a clip from this week's featured artist, Amber Autumn. Stay tuned.
This week's feature artist is Amber Autumn, a multidisciplinary creative who uses her poetry and music to create sonic stories relating to her experiences as a young Black woman in Baltimore. Amber is a fellow student at the University of Baltimore, and believe me when I tell you that she is someone you need to be watching. She's a fantastic writer, singer, voice actress, and host. I've put the links to her social media handles in the show notes and in the blog that corresponds with this episode. If you want to hear more of her song titled To Will, you can find it on Spotify. All right, friends. Now, I'm going to ask you to do a jump to your left and now a step to your right. Put your hands on your hips and bring your knees in tight because we are time warping back to 1927 in Baltimore, a time when some knights were in need of a castle. Enter Clyde N. Frizz, a notable Baltimore architect who was active in his field from 1900 until his death in 1942. Frizz had already spent more than 20 years in Baltimore City at that point. Primarily, he'd been working on elaborate apartment complexes in the city. But in 1927, he was put to work as the architect of the Grand Lodge of the Knights of Pythias. So who exactly were these knights? Excellent question. First, let's explore the legend behind their name. Pythias, as you may know, is a character born of Greek legend who is best known for rebelling against Dionysius I of Syracuse. Not to be confused with the god Dionysus, the god of wine. Rumor had it that Pythias had been caught conspiring against Dionysius, a supreme military commander in 406 BC who was known for conquering several cities in Sicily and southern Italy. Not long after his military successes, he managed to seize power and topple democracy in Syracuse while he pursued his tyrannical reign. It's unclear whether Pythias was truly guilty of plotting to murder Dionysius at the time or not, but nevertheless, Pythias was sentenced to death. Pythias accepted his sentencing and requested that he be permitted to return home one last time to settle his affairs and bid his family farewell. Naturally, Dionysius was like, no way, my dude, you won't come back to be executed, which is kind of fair. But Pythias had a bestie, a ride or die. His name was Damon, and he rolled up on the scene saying, take me instead. Naturally, the tyrant king accepts the understanding that if Pythias does not return within a certain amount of time, Damon would be executed in his place. Much to everyone's surprise, Pythias does indeed return in order to save Damon's life. The friendship and trust fostered between the two men is said to have moved the tyrant so much so that he decided to show mercy on them both and let them free. Some versions of the story also include Dionysius attempting to become their third in this epic romance. Predictably, Damon and Pythias said, nah bro, we're good here. Sometimes the story is told in the opposite order, with Damon being the accused and Pythias offering to stay, but you get the point, right? Friendship is magic, and this legend has, of course, been adapted in literature and pop culture throughout the ages. This inspirational story about brotherly love is said to be the namesake and the guiding principles of the Knights of Pythias, the first fraternal organization and secret society that would receive a charter under the Act of the United States Congress. The organization itself was founded in Washington, D.C. on February 19, 1864, and has since branched outwards across the United States and even internationally. According to their website, the Fraternal Order of the Knights of Pythias promotes cooperation and friendship between people of goodwill. From the outside looking in, this seems to be an organization that has been founded on wholesome principles, but with an organization that has spanned nearly 160 years, certainly there are some blemishes on their record but more on that later. The membership for the fraternity has historically been limited to men who are in good health, at least 18 years of age, and believe in a supreme being of some kind. 
disabled individuals were not permitted to join until 1875. Women have had a complicated relationship with the Knights of Pythias, which obviously involved exclusion initially. In 1888, the Supreme Lodge of the Knights of Pythias approved the creation of a female auxiliary. However, there was a competing sect that emerged right around the same time and they ended up divided. Today, the Pythian women have since merged into one group after a tumultuous go of things, though inside sources have expressed that the good old boys club hasn't passed on as much brotherly love to their sisters as they'd like us to believe. So how secret is the society? Are there any famous members that you might know of? Absolutely. Some notable members include three presidents, Warren G. Harding, William McKinley, and Franklin D. Roosevelt. We've also got a couple of vice presidents, Hubert Horatio Humphrey and Nelson A. Rockefeller. Plus, there are plenty of other senators, judges, and high-powered businessmen. You know, the good old boys. So, what of the knights that gathered in this particular castle? What were they up to? Well, I'm not here to tell you that there wasn't some truth to the brotherly bonds expressed to the Knights of Pythias bylaws, but if there were any significant stories about the Grand Lodge of Baltimore contributing a significant amount of value to the community, I really haven't found any evidence of that, but I'm open to it if someone might have some. What I have found is evidence of members being arrested for doing screenings of blue movies and other debauchery as the building veered into becoming something that was more like a nightclub as the result of their many stag socials. It's hard to say exactly what was going on in there, but let me be the first to say that if the men in the association were murdering their wives and replacing them with Stepford-style robots, I would not be the least bit surprised. By the 1950s, the Knights had established various locations throughout Baltimore suburbs, and many of them relocated, leaving their castle ostensibly abandoned until Loyola Bank came along to set up shop. The bank that occupied the building would change several times before it became a single-level operation that would continue to run even throughout the $13 million renovation being done by the university. Now, if you lived in Baltimore during the 1990s, you might even remember hearing about the university's acquisition of the building in the news. At this time, President Turner, who served in his position at the University of Baltimore from 1969 to 2002, had set his sights on the building to be used as additional office space for the school. By this point, he'd already gotten quite the reputation for collecting interesting architectural buildings and giving them new life and purpose. One of his most notable accomplishments included the acquisition and restoration of the Lyric Opera House, which is just around the corner from the LAP building. With his reputation to precede him, the purchase proposal for the historic property was fast-tracked, and by the end of the 90s, the University of Baltimore became the proud new owner of this very interesting piece of Baltimore's architectural and cultural history. Though the addition of Inclusion Alley is not technically a part of the liberal arts and policy building's architecture, the space between it and the university's business center, which sits right next to it along Charles Street, is a vibrant statement about the university's commitment to inclusion. The exterior wall of the LAP building includes a covered walkway leading up to the student and faculty entrance. Murals such as Stand with Ukraine, No Justice, No Peace, Stop Hate, Spread Love, and more line them. The railing is vibrantly painted and the walkway is lined with geometric blocks of color. The center of the alley that divides the two university buildings is painted over with a large rainbow down the center. Halfway down the alley, a new mural has been painted to further celebrate the acceptance of the LBGTQ community. This mural is made to look like a prism that reflects the colors off of several of the most relevant pride flags. Further down the alley, closer to Charles Street, 
you'll find a mural that's dedicated to Juneteenth, commemorating the end of slavery, and another that boldly emphasizes that Black Lives Matter. This project was commissioned by the UB student government and designed by local community artist Sarah Golden in 2020. This street art installation was created to celebrate equality, solidarity, and the joy of togetherness on the University of Baltimore campus. This is a message that the university intends to instill in future generations as well, with plans to repaint the alley every two years during Pride Month as a demonstration of the school's continued support for the LBGTQ community. Unfortunately, the Liberal Arts and Policy Building is not generally open to the public, but you could have opportunities to visit inside during the Open Door Baltimore events. If the architecture sounds interesting and you'd like to see the exterior or bask in the loving, colorful glow of Inclusion Alley, you can find the building at 10 West Preston Street in Baltimore. Again, if you think you might be interested in the architectural styling of the building, you might also consider stopping by the Enoch Pratt Central Library at 400 Cathedral Street in Baltimore. This is possibly the most famous building designed by the same architect, Clyde N. Frizz, with similar Italian Renaissance vibe, only this time it's open to the public. Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church was mentioned in our last episode as it's located just down the street from the Ouija 7-Eleven. I would say that if you're a lover of architecture, especially Gothic churches, this should absolutely be on your list of places to visit. It's absolutely breathtaking. Whoo, buddy! Let me tell you that researching an old building, especially one with virtually no documentation of the original design, is tough. And before I fully wrap this episode up, I wanted to share one final quirk about the building. Many people at the university have known that this episode was coming out, and so I've been asked over and over again about the electric chair that is rumored to be in the basement. I'm sorry to say that I haven't been able to learn anything about it, but it sure is there. I spoke to Professor Rachel Zeleny, who led the Open Doors Baltimore tours over the last few years. The basement of the LAP building is blocked off, even for faculty. A security guard would have to take you down to give you access. Fortunately, the professor was able to sweet-talk one of the guards one day into allowing her to take a tour of the basement. And that is when she found the wooden electrical chair with the straps still attached. What I hadn't heard about this story was that there was also a full-size wooden coffin under the building as well. There's nobody in it. I definitely asked, and she definitely checked. But why are they there? Well, there are speculations, but no one's been able to substantiate any of them. At this point, I'm going to simply say that it's because I couldn't possibly have an episode where we aren't talking about death. But if you happen to be out there, sitting there, listening, and you know any additional fun facts about the building or why these objects might be in the basement, you know, shoot me a message. I would love to hear about it. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the show notes for some extra information about this week's featured artist, Amber Autumn. She is so talented, you guys, so definitely keep your eyes on her. Also, make sure to check out the corresponding blog for this post. I've linked a lot of really great material in there if you're interested in learning more. Plus, there's a boatload of pictures, including one of the coffin and the electrical chair. And now, you absolute champion, it's time for me to send you off with a secret, or two rather, two secrets today. First off, as you guys know, I'm pursuing my degree in creative writing and publishing at the University of Baltimore. However, I recently became involved with the university's Merrick School of Business when I entered their 11th annual Rise to the Challenge competition. It's sort of like Shark Tank, 
but it's an opportunity to pitch your business idea and then earn some startup money. I'm one of the six finalists that will be competing next week and I'm pitching my company, Synapse Collective, which intends to create an educational presentation platform that offers a multimodal learning experience. The idea is to connect new information with existing understanding and it will all be done on a platform that allows users to work through and observe the content as if they were walking through a video game. It's really exciting. Second, and less important overall, while I was doing some research for the Ouija board episode last week, I discovered that there was a movie called Ouija Shark. So after that episode aired, I had some time and I watched it. And it was exquisitely awful. The main character essentially finds a Ouija board floating in the water. She and some friends play with it and summon a ghost shark. It is so, so, so bad good. The main character is also wearing a t-shirt for the band Goat through the entire movie, and the same band played the end number for this absolute masterpiece. I looked at the band afterward, and they are apparently based in Sweden, and they wear these insane masks and funky clothes, tribal get-ups. They have so many albums, and the style range is absurd. Wikipedia refers to it as experimental fusion, which says nothing and also everything. It's kind of psychedelic sometimes. It's hard rock. There's definitely some Afro and world beat stylings in there. I've listened to nothing else for days now and it's great. If you need some new music, I highly recommend it. And the movie, you know, if you're also high key obsessed with terrible and confusing things, it's definitely for you. Okay, that's quite enough from me. Catch you guys next time.